Hello, welcome to Yuskogans. Uh, this is episode seven. Uh, today we'll be talking on cyberspace and sovereignty and the role that international law plays to govern uh, interstate cyber operations and other cyber operations. And joining us today is uh, Professor Eric uh, Jensen, who is a professor of law at Brigham Young University. He teaches in the areas of public international law, international criminal law, national security law, uh, and the law of armed conflict. Uh, he has published extensively in these areas and was also a member of the group of experts that uh, drafted the first talent manual on the international law applicable to cyber warfare, and the second uh, talent uh, 2.0 manual, uh, international law applicable to cyber operations. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Professor Jensen, for taking out time and being with us on the podcast. Happy to be here. All right, great. Uh, so just to, to get the discussion going, uh, can you just give a brief overview of the general international law framework, which is applicable in the area or domain of cyberspace. And uh, given that it's, it's, it's somewhat unexplored uh, and uncharted uh, area of international law, how does one uh, consolidate uh, the existing framework? Well, I think this is a, an interesting question because it's not maybe as simple as it might seem. Uh, there is general consensus on the idea that international law generally applies to cyberspace. Uh, we have some great statements coming out of the United Nations Group of Government Experts, where they have in their 2013 report, their 2015 report, they have uh, said that that cyberspace is generally governed by international law, and they've specifically pointed out the UN Charter regime and human rights and things like that as specifically uh, areas where they say international law applies to cyberspace. But uh, one of the areas that caused the breakdown in the 2017 Group of Government Experts was the application of international humanitarian law or the law of armed conflict as I refer to it, and whether it applied or the extent to which it applied to uh, cyber activities. So even though I think there is general agreement by states that international law applies to cyberspace and that that's the framework under which you analyze a cyber, interstate cyberspace question. There is still, I think, some debate on the, the how it applies and the details of that general application. Could you also shed some light upon how the Talent Project, in particular Talent Manual 1 and 2, have served as a guidance manual for the interpretation of international law in the field of cyberspace? Sure. I, you know, the Talent Projects are, uh, are pretty... Um, I, I was going to say unique, but they're not unique in that there have been other manuals before and since, but, but they are unique, I think, in that they were a response to a specific event or a series of events, an escalating series of events that made many of us who had written or thought in this area think, well, how would you apply international law generally to this idea of, of uh, cyberspace? And that's really what the intent of the manuals were. Many people have maybe taken the manuals a bit too far and thought that what we were trying to do was tell states how they should apply the law. And that, of course, was never our intent. All of us who were involved in, in both Talent 1 and Talent 2 projects understand that states make law, not, uh, not academics, not people who think about this stuff, it's states. But what we thought we could do was we thought we could help states. Uh, you know, governments are often so busy, they, they, they're always dealing with the thing right in front of them and don't have a lot of time to engage in deep thought on questions that might be new. And we thought we could help states by getting a bunch of people together who had thought about this, who had some expertise in international law, 
and by coming up with what we thought was the general application of international law to first of all cyber warfare as Talon Manual 1 and then cyber operations more generally in Talon 2.0. And I feel like that's uh, that's kind of what the manual does. And, and we we intended it to be something to spark discussion, which of course it obviously has, uh, otherwise we wouldn't be talking about it today. We intended it to stop to spark the discussion and to give states at least a starting point to say, yes, I agree with that, or no, I don't agree with that, and here's why. And I think it's successfully done that. Uh, so, so hopefully, it's understood not as not as us telling people what the law is, but us telling people what we thought the law was, and then hoping that states would weigh in and confirm or deny. Which, uh, you know, I mean, we can talk about this, but states certainly have responded uh, to what we've said in talent, both positively and negatively. No, I, I think that's a that's a fantastic sort of starting point, uh, Professor Jensen, for you to mention that it's the Talon manuals are not an authoritative text, but only talk about the interpretations of international law and their application in uh, the cybersphere. Um, so that's a great starting point. And since the central theme of our discussion today also revolves around developing state practice um, along the lines of the application of international law in, uh, in cyberspace, uh, I think I think it's a fantastic fantastic point to start with. Um, so, so perhaps along the lines of interpretation, uh, is, is it possible for you to shed some light on, on disagreements that perhaps erupted between scholars when drafting the Talon Manual as to how international law ought to be interpreted in cyberspace, uh, specifically around the, the concept of sovereignty, because that, that has been a contentious issue. And in addition to that, if I could just follow it up, um, has there been a variance in interpretation, if any, on, on which cyber operations amount to use of force and coercive intervention um, in, in, in cyberspace? Yeah, so th these are great questions, and of course, we're uh, matters of, of uh, really involved and in-depth discussion during the talent processes. Uh, let me first just um, explain how the talent manuals are set up, because that will help me answer that question. The talent manuals consist of black letter rules and then commentary. Uh, and talent one, by the way, has been almost completely reproduced in talent two. So if you if you're thinking about only buying one, get talent 2.0 because it's got <laughs> in it. But mostly about Talon 2.0 since it, it contains the, the substance of both. Uh, so Talon 2.0 I think has 154 black letter rules or, or something close to that. And um, those black letter rules were rules that everyone in the group agreed with. So there was complete unanimity on those rules. Now, there might have been uh, you know shades of acceptance, but we all could raise our hand and say, yes, we accept that. And then you, you know, there are pages of commentary after each black letter rule. And what those what the, those pages of commentary do is they annotate where uh, we group of experts uh, either disagreed amongst ourselves, or where we recognize that there was disagreement uh, among scholars, or amongst governments, or other things. And then we comment on that disagreement. So when you ask about um, the areas of disagreement in the process, I think as you read Talon. Uh, the talent manuals, and particularly talent 2.0, <clears throat> you will see in the commentary many places where we uh, disagreed on specific points with respect to the application of that black letter rule. And this is unsurprising. I mean, it was a very diverse group covering from, from every continent, of course, except Antarctica, but all, all six populated continents in the world, and, and very varying uh, backgrounds in terms of our legal systems and our legal approaches. Yes, there was a great deal of disagreement, but but my sense from sitting there was that there was more consensus than disagreement. Otherwise, we wouldn't have come up with 154 
black letter rules that we accepted as certain. But some of that disagreement certainly revolved around uh, the issues that you raised, um, the UN Charter paradigm of use of force, prohibited intervention, and sovereignty. And I think, um, particularly with respect to the sovereignty question, there has been even more disagreement amongst the experts since then than during the process that we went through. And, and some of that, of course, has come from seeing states respond to what we said in the Talon Manual. So let me start, first of all, with use of force. Uh, use of force, you know, I mean, I, if this wasn't a, a cyber discussion, I could ask you, give me what a use of force is. Tell me what a use of force is. <laughs> and you could all respond and say, well, here's something we know that's use of force, and here's something we know that's not a use of force. But between those two, there's a spectrum of things that, that states, academics, people like you and me disagree on whether or not that is a use of force or not. And in the manual, we say that. We say, look, there's, to the extent that there isn't clarity with, in a kinetic world or a non-cyber world, that same lack of clarity exists in the cyber world, except maybe even more extensive, because in a cyber world where you're using cyber tools, the, the number of targets you can reach, the number of tools you can use, the number of effects you can create, all of that is dramatically increased from a non-cyber world. And so those discussions of what actually amounts to a use of force it only magnifies and is more difficult to, uh, to, to apply in detail. And that is true of prohibited intervention and sovereignty as well. Those same questions exist in those areas as well. We know basically what the rule is. A use of force is in violation of Article 2 sub 4, but the details of how that applies is difficult in the cyber realm and outside the cyber. Right, and, and just as a quick follow-up so that, that we create like a decent foundation for the following parts of this um, discussion. Um, there, was there any disagreement, at, and, and even following, for instance, I remember reading the symposium by uh, Prof Professor Gary Korn and Michael Schmidt along the lines of whether or not sovereignty in itself is a self-standing rule of uh, international law. So, and, and, and given that we're gonna be talking about the, the most recent statement of the General Council of the Department of Defense around also concepts of sovereignty in international cyberspace, uh, maybe if you could just shed some light on that. Yeah, so again, I'll harken back to the purpose of the Talon Manuals. They were, we really wanted to stick with Lex Lata, what the law actually is, what we thought it was at the time, and not Lex Ferenda. I mean, there are lots of things as we analyze the principles of applying international law to cyber operations that we, we said to ourselves, well, it would be good if this was how the law developed. But that was not our job in Talon. Our job was to state what we thought the law was. We thought that was the best way to help states move forward. And, and at that moment in time, with respect to the principle of sovereignty, uh, we did have some competing uh, ideas uh, brought to us, and some came in a little late uh, in the process, but, but we, we thought at the time, given what we understood the law to be and how states were thinking about it, that sovereignty was, was uh, treated more as a rule than as a principle. Mm -hmm. But uh, but that started to fall apart, I think, after mm -hmm. the publication of the Talon Manual. I mean, there have been a number of states, as we'll talk about later, that have since come out and said that's not really how we're understanding sovereignty in the cyber realm. Mm -hmm. I think that's, again, that's healthy. That proves that our manual did what it was supposed to do, right? It's, it's made states speak up and talk about what they believe. Now, there, there is the danger that states will just try and innovate and make this up as they go and disregard existing law. I don't think that's the case with respect to sovereignty, because I think sovereignty is a pretty squishy idea anyway. 
but, uh, but that's certainly been the case that states have spoken up since then, and that's been great. If I could just chip in for uh, somebody who is not that familiar with the international legal regime on cyberspace, uh, when you say that uh, sovereignty as an idea is a bit squishy, uh, what do you exactly uh, mean by that? And uh, measures which do not amount to coercive interventions or use of force, uh, what is their status? Are they a violation of state sovereignty and not a violation of international law, or are they not a violation of sovereignty to begin with? Uh, sorry if it's a bit confusing. No, no, that's, those are great questions. So let me start with your second question first. Um, so it's pretty clear uh, that, a pro that, that cyber activities that amount to prohibited intervention are violations of international law, as are cyber activities that are used as a force. Um, the question I think that is getting most of the attention is, is a cyber operation that um, might uh, infringe on another state's sovereignty, is that an, an unlawful act such that it raises issues of state responsibility, uh, et cetera, right? And that's the real question, because if, if every infringement of sovereignty in the cyber realm is an, is an issue of state responsibility, a breach of a duty under state responsibility, then an internationally wrongful act, we could say, then that, that, that puts many cyber operations that states are currently undergoing in a very different realm. And so that's really, I think, where the most key question is. Now, why do I say sovereignty is squishy? Well, back in 1999, the, the U.S. Department of Defense General Counsel's Office published a forward-looking document with respect to uh, cyber operations and information operations, as it called it then. And, and it analyzed in brief the different applications of sovereignty in a number of different paradigms. So in, on land, with respect to territorial sovereignty, on the waters, with respect to sovereignty in the high seas, uh, sovereignty over your airspace, and then sovereignty over outer space. And in every one of these regimes, uh, we treat sovereignty a little different, right? So territorial sovereignty is clearly the most restricted. But those other, those other regimes or domains apply sovereignty differently. And what this 1999 document concluded was that it was too early. They took as an assumption that states determine how to apply sovereignty in domains. And then they said it was too early at that time to figure out how states would treat sovereignty in those domains, in, in, sorry, in the cyber domain. Right. And so then when we came to deal with that issue, I think we took a pretty restrictive view of sovereignty in the talent manual. But since then, states have spoken up and said, that's, we're not sure that's how we're treating sovereignty. We, we think in the cyber domain that like with space and air and sea and land, that sovereignty might be treated a little differently. And therefore, uh, we are going to consider this. And we're still working that out as we interact with each other. And you've mentioned uh, the, a number of statements by U.S. government officials. I mean, they, they have brought up uh, at various points, espionage is an example. I, I'm not sure yeah. I totally agree with this, with their analysis on this, but, but what they have said is that, you know, look, espionage is in a, in a, in a world where sovereignty was absolute, espionage would be a violation of sovereignty in, in basically mm -hmm. every if it was not remote, and in most cases where it was remote. Um, but that's not the view of most states. In fact, I don't know any states that accept that every, as a matter of international law, that every incidence of espionage is a violation of sovereignty and therefore an internationally wrongful act, or even if it is a violation of sovereignty, that it is an internationally wrongful act. And so that, you know, the U.S. government has used that, or members of the U.S. government have used that on some occasions to say, look, there's, 
there's no way that this rule of sovereignty can be so absolute even in the territorial realm. Right, I see. So, so then jumping into, you know, like perhaps the, the um, general counsel statement as well, and maybe just opposing it with, with uh, certain other countries, for instance, France, and their official statement on um, the absoluteness of, of violations. Uh, the, the, the general counsel uses espionage, like you mentioned, as an analog to the DOD's position on, on sovereignty going so far as to say that international law uh, does not prohibit espionage, even even when it involves some degree of physical or racial intrusion into foreign territory. And and while that may be the case in practice, uh, I, I feel like the contention over here is that it is not prohibited under international law, but can it be considered a viable um, form of state practice that can result in the crystallization of customary international law, given that it, it, it by nature is a secretive um, act? Yeah, so... So does the acknowledgement that things exist uh, equate to the idea that they are lawful? Exactly. Uh, and I think that's too much of a jump. But, but remember that, that at least from, the, from most uh, nations' view, international law is a permissive environment, not a prohibitive environment. And so most nations view international law from the perspective of if we as states haven't gotten together and agreed to prohibit something, then that is permissive. And so then your question becomes, well, how prohibitive have states viewed sovereignty? And then you're right back in this same loop, mm -hmm. right? Yep. So with respect to, to, to espionage, um, every state uh, outlaws espionage as a matter of domestic law. Mm -hmm. Therefore, there may not be a reason, states haven't found a reason to treat espionage under international law because they know it's a domestic issue that's taken care of. And maybe states all recognizing that they conduct espionage, that that is a piece of state craft that they do. They don't want to make it illegal as a matter of international law. Instead, they will allow domestic regimes to govern it. You know, I, I, some people are worried in areas where states haven't spoken or where states have, have remained silent. That doesn't bother me very much. I think states have at least remained silent with respect to espionage and its legality uh, in most cases and, uh, and don't say that espionage per se is unlawful. Now, we can clearly say that states have said methods of espionage. There are certain methods of espionage which are unlawful, and we say that in the Talon Manual as well. Recognizing that espionage isn't unlawful per se, certainly methods would be, but, uh, but I think that, again, it, it, it's, a, it's a point that states have allowed that to happen and haven't decided to prohibit it, and therefore, in a permissive international law environment, it seems to be okay. So, so Professor Jensen, just as a quick follow-up then, and now as regards its application in cyberspace, you, you had, for instance, the French state authorities come out and say that, that remote cyber operations would in fact viol violate a self-standing principle of, uh, of state sovereignty, uh, which could then, and, and Russell Buchan wrote a very interesting piece on uh, EGIL on that as well, interpreting uh, that French position to, to amount to an absolute, almost resembling an international rule of trustness. Uh, understanding of sovereignty as to an absolute barrier that, that states can't violate it. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? So I hesitate to disagree with Russell because Russell's <laughs> super smart and, uh, and a great <laughs> colleague. But um, <clears throat> I think one of the key points about that French statement, and Gary Korn has raised this as well, um, shortly after that French statement, the French law enforcement authorities were engaged in a multinational cyber operation to shut down a a really large botnet that was having an impact in France. So 
you know, if you if you take their strong statements with respect to national security issues and cast it against their law enforcement extension of uh, they they were doing uh, cyber operations in other countries on other countries' servers against other countries' nationals to shut down that botnet. Those two seem inconsistent. Mm -hmm. Now, how they're in, I mean, I'm sure France has a very consistent way of viewing both of those, but they haven't been clear enough to let us know how they can say one thing and then do another. And I, but, but what I think that means is this, that Russell's categorical statement that this is a statement with respect to sovereignty may be too strong until we get some more understanding of what France, how France really plans to apply, uh, to apply those doctrines of sovereignty. It, they obviously didn't feel too constrained to go in and shut down that button. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Professor Jensen, do you think that the lack of a robust international legal framework, for example, the one that uh, governs the espionage issue, similarly in, in this situation, does, that, does the lack of such a framework allow these differences in interpretations of what is permissible and what is not permissible? Uh, because there's, there's still some confusion about very fundamental uh, principles of international law, like sovereignty and what does constitute use of force and what does not constitute. So how, how do you understand these, uh, these, these issues? Well, you know, if you go back to the function of international law, international law is designed really to facilitate the interaction between states and now under the UN Charter regime to facilitate peaceful interactions between states, right? right. I mean, think about the law of the sea. The law of the sea developed over centuries, and there was there was almost continuous disagreement, and there's still some continu continuous disagreement, right? What what is a historical bay? What's the territorial sea? I mean, there's still some states that disagree with these issues even after the 1982 UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. But that development time frame was centuries the development of the law of the sea, and and we've now been operating in cyberspace for 20 years. I mean. I, it may be a little, a little optimistic of us to think that states will immediately come to some agreement as to how they're going to interact and what legal rules will bind them in such a short space of time. Uh, I think it would be helpful, of course, if that, you know, if everybody would agree and say, okay, here's the rules. Right. But that's just not often how, how states work. And there's so many dichotomies in international law: the West versus the East, the powerful versus the right. world versus, you know, undeveloped. And so many different interests that I think something as new as the cyber domain will require some pushing and pulling on behalf of states to figure out how best to apply it in specific areas. So, so I'm not bothered too much by the lack of clarity, uh, given the history of international law. States will eventually work this out. Yeah, I, I bring that up because, uh, for example, a principle like sovereignty, which uh, arguably, uh, you know, since the post-Westphalian system, it is the cornerstone of international law. And one would argue that it is, if there's one thing which is established in international law, it is the sovereignty of states. Uh, and then uh, when you enter the cyberspace era uh, and there are arguments that it might be, it, it, it might not be a standalone principle, but a guiding principle. And there might be different interpretations of what sovereignty is. So for me, uh, that might conflate the uh, fundamentals of international a little bit. I, I, I don't, maybe, maybe I'm thinking it, uh, in a very simplistic manner, but how, how, how would you see it? No, I, I think your view is, is, uh, is certainly a strong view and a view that many, many people accept that this, this doctrine of sovereignty and the sovereign of states, sovereign equality of states 
the idea that I control everything within my territory and I'm responsible for everything outside my territory that comes from within. I mean, those are fundamental bedrock principles of international law. But we already, again, have examples where this principle of sovereignty is treated differently yeah. in different domains amongst ourselves, right? So even, even those states, every state will say sovereignty is fundamental. Let me just cut aside for a second. In the UNGGE process, mm -hmm. UN Group of Government Experts, the U.S. continuously in their submission said sovereignty, 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 sovereignty. Um, and yet, having said that, they have still taken a very aggressive view with respect to persistent engagement and sovereignty, right? So it's not that the U.S. doesn't support sovereignty. It's that it supports a specific understanding of sovereignty in the cyber realm. And so I think, again, the fact that states disagree on the exact application of the, the principle or rule of sovereignty in the cyber domain is not uncommon with many international law principles. Uh, Professor Jensen, if I could interject here. So in terms of third states that are caught up in the whole issue of the cyberspace domain, so consider, for example, the documents of one state lie in the sort of the territorial domain of a third state and then another state attacks those particular objects in the third state, which is not related to any of the other two. Uh, would it then, in your opinion, in what circumstances would it violate international and specifically in terms of the principle of non-intervention? What are your thoughts on this particular aspect? Yeah, so it's, it's a good scenario. So country A has uh, government documents that are key and important to its government functioning, residing on uh, computer servers in government in state B, and state C is the one that's after government A's documents in state B, right? That's the scenario. Okay. Um, so this is a, this is a great uh, scenario to test some of these ideas. First of all, let's assume that there's no international armed conflict existing, because if there was international armed conflict, then we would be looking at the doctrine of neutrality, and we would have a different set of rules to analyze. Let's assume that this is the law of peacetime and that we're really looking at the UN charter regime. Um, so is this is the method by which they conduct this gathering of government A's documents a use of force? If not, no violation of two sub four. Um, is it coercive and is it about the domain reserve? Um, might be, again, it would be factually specific if those documents were, were indeed inherent to the functioning of government A and their divulgence to government C or their capture by government C would be coercive or would create coercive circumstances such that government A would have to take certain actions or would be coerced in some way, then it might be a prohibited intervention. But that, again, would be only the relationships between A and C. I think what you're getting at is, is it a violation of B's sovereignty as well as potentially a prohibited intervention against government A? And then I think we're back to the same question of it depends how they conduct that uh, capture and, uh, and what the effects are of that capture. If all they do is go in and uh, change by brute force, change the passwords to where that server is such that government A can no longer access them, then I think that there's lots of state practice out there that shows that states are doing that and, and not accepting that as a violation of sovereignty. If instead they go in and take down the server, damage the server, wipe all the data off all those servers, including other data, well, then you're closer to a violation. You're closer to a situation where most states would say, well, that was a violation of government B's. So, so, so Professor Jensen, it's, it's again, very interesting that you bring that. And it 
probably ties back straight into the, the United States strategy developed late last year or two years ago uh, in relation to defending forward. Uh, do you think then, then this approach might open too wide the doors to extraterritorial cyber operations, even if certain states do not think that they violate uh, their, their sovereignty? There are states where there's a significant asymmetry in, in, in cyber resources and capabilities and the dangers and vulnerabilities that come with that. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, in all of these cases, you have to ask yourself, which world would you rather live in, right? A world with very strong sovereignty principles or a world without? Um, and, and those are questions that are really kind of policy questions. I think the, the legal question about that is how will states develop their state practice and opinion of Europe? And we have all read uh, plenty of news reports where um, actions attributed to cyber-capable states have, have been in the territorial jurisdiction or the territorial sovereignty of other states to know that that's that if you're looking for state practice states are doing this all the time they're continuously conducting cyber operations in other states territory and so uh, to the extent that you're looking for state practice as your guide I mean I think state practice is pretty clear whether you get the opinion of yours or not that's where those statements by for example the Honorable Mr. Nye uh, you know, Jeremy Wright from the UK and folks in Australia. I mean, that's where you start to get those the importance of those statements because they begin to attach the legal importance to those what we can see as state practice. Now, does that mean that some states are at a competitive disadvantage? Absolutely, right? States that are not cyber capable capable are absolutely at a competitive disadvantage. And do they even have the capability to defend themselves from cyber intrusions, not just by states, by the way, but by very capable non-state actors. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just the way the world is. I mean, that's true in the kinetic world as well, right? So uh, I think that's just the way the world is. Sorry, no, just, just really quick. Do you think then there's a requirement of a protective regime probably that states should develop or ought to develop over the next 10, 20 years? Just real quick. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, again, this, this is a problem that is perennial and much broader than just a cyber issue, right? Mm -hmm. The yep. nuclear non-proliferation treaty to try and resolve some of those inequities, right? We've got all kinds of problems with respect to potential autonomous weapon systems that are being developed. All of these things are going to favor the rich Western nations versus the poor third world or developing nations, right? That's just the way the world is. And though I think that's an unfortunate aspect of international law, I think it's the reality of international law. And if you're talking about a protective regime, that would of course require the states who have those capabilities and have such great influence on international law to give up some of their competitive advantage or comparative advantage. And I, you know, I don't know what set of circumstances would allow them to do that. Again, with nuclear weapons, they could have all said, yeah, it's unfair, we're all gonna disarm. That's not how they decided to respond to that, that, uh, that situation. Uh, you mentioned non-state actors in uh, in something which you just mentioned before. So, how would do you see the rules of state responsibility as codified by the INC in the draft articles to be applicable to the realm of cyberspace? Because there are issues, evidentiary issues, in terms of attributing conduct, whether to a state, whether to non-state actors. In particular, there are instances where the cyber attack originates from a third state, but it's in fact another state which has perpetrated the attack. So how do you see the rules of attribution fitting into this? Yeah, attribution is a very vexing question in the cyber world. And, and you know, we deal with it quite extensively in uh, the Talon manuals. Um, attribution is tough because the way the internet is set up, 
at least initially, you can almost always cloak your actions. You route it through various servers. You use different uh, ruses to, to represent yourself as someone that you are not. Um, I, I'm not a computer scientist, but I have had many computer scientists say to me that attribution is solvable and that given enough time, you can almost always get a really good or a pretty confident uh, attribution. But it's that time lag that's so important, right? Because if you can't attribute quickly, then that makes it more difficult. So those, the normal rules of attribution under the state rules responsibility would apply, and or the rules of state responsibility would apply. So Article 4 uh, entities would be, you know, naturally, these are ones that are either de jure or de facto um, members of the government. They, they're going to be easy, easily attributable. So this is, the, you know, if, if the American... Department of Defense takes an action that's clearly attributable to the United States of America. Uh, but then you've got other uh, ways to attribute in five, six, uh, five and six, and, and Articles five and six, and then Article eight really is the toughest one. These are non-state actors who might operate under the direction or control of a state, and that's a pretty high standard. If you go back and look at the standard as it's established in in the ICJ paramilitaries case or the Bosnia genocide case, this standard of of uh, a non-state actor being under sufficient control or direction of the state to have their actions be attributable. Um, it's a high standard and it allows many states to use proxies uh, to do things that would then be hard to attribute to that state. You'll note that in the United Nations Group of Government Experts comment, uh, their statements, their reports, in both the 2013 but even more in the 2015, they talk about proxies. And they, they clearly state the use of proxies by states to accomplish harmful things is not lawful. But that, doesn't, that, doesn't, that, that assumes attribution, right? So uh, it still doesn't solve your attribution problem. There's a great statement by uh, President Putin uh, several months ago where he, he is asked about some of these actions that have been attributed to Russia. And, and he's, his response is, and I'll paraphrase because I don't have the quote in front of me, but his response is, if, if a Russian patriot wakes up in the morning and decides that uh, he doesn't like the actions of some other country and decides to take some cyber acts on his own that, have, that, that support Russia's goals, you know, who am I to stop that? Who am I to prevent that? It's just like an artist waking up in the morning and wanting to paint. Well, if, if states take that view, then of course that incentivizes non-state actors to work in this area and operate in this area and to do things even on behalf of states. And it also incentivizes states to use proxies as long as they stay below the line of attribution. One way to counter this is to have a very active principle of due diligence and to say no states you're responsible for the actions of those. This principle of due diligence is, a, is a, again, one of those foundational international law principles that, that a state is responsible for the transboundary harm that comes from within its territory and has adverse effects in another state's territory. Most, this is most uh, prevalent in the area of international environmental law, but there's lots of us who are discussing what's the role of due diligence in the cyber realm. Does, is President Putin responsible for some Russian citizen who decides on their own to take actions is, you know, is the United States government responsible for some U.S. government non-state actor who decides to take actions? Um, right now, I think states are very hesitant to embrace a very strong view of due diligence. We have a, a, a section about it in the Talon Manuals saying basically that due diligence does exist, but 
that it only exists when a state knows something bad is happening, when it's been put on notice and it can stop it. It's a difficult, uh, it's a difficult decision, but how this idea of, of proxies or the use of proxies and the state's responsibility under due diligence, how that resolves over time with respect to cyber operations will have a significant impact on state responsibility. Uh, Professor Denton, following uh, attribution then, um, could you perhaps touch upon the issue of countermeasures in cyberspace? Because I feel like that is the logical linear approach then that we can follow and, and talk a little bit about what your position is on, on that and its application in cyberspace. And, and also notwithstanding exceptions, what is your position on an injured state dispensing uh, with the need to notify another state of its intention to take countermeasures within the cyberspace context? Yeah. If I could just add a bit to this question. so where you don't know if the attack originated or was perpetrated by another state. And there would be this time gap between you definitively figuring out the attack was carried out by state X. So in that time, how do countermeasures play a role? Because the state is uncertain at that time as to whether it was indeed on uh, beyond all reasonable doubt or on probabilities that it was the state which actually perpetrated these attacks. Yeah, so let, let me start by giving you a view that I think is not uh, super popular with many of my colleagues, but I still believe is true and especially true in the cyber realm. And that is that we often tend to think about attribution as an on-off switch. We either can fully attribute or we can't attribute. And, and I don't think that's how states do it. I think what states do is states have a spectrum of attribution and they say, okay, I believe I'm 30% sure that it was state B. Therefore, because I'm only 30% sure, I'm only going to be able to take retorsive measures, things such as sanctions or diplomatic actions, etc. But if I got up to 80% sure that it was state B, then maybe I could take countermeasures because I would be willing to accept the risk involved in countermeasures uh, because I'm 80% sure it was state B who did something. And to get to 100% sure, you know, then, then you're really sure and you can take whatever actions you lawfully can. So let me just say that about, about attribution. I don't think it's an on-off switch, and I think we have to accept that states are responding to each other based on a spectrum of attribution. And so when, a, when, when the United States, for example, comes out and says, uh, we believe that we can attribute this attack to Russia, um, then they can, they, they're doing that so that they can justify, as a matter of law, their response. So let's talk about countermeasures in cyberspace. Remember that countermeasures require an unlawful act, right? So the threshold question with respect to the use of countermeasures is that there must have been an initial violation of the law. Now you've circled right back to the idea of sovereignty, right? If, if sovereignty is a strict rule, then you get the countermeasures much quicker. I think that's something that these sovereignists have to think about. People who really argue for sovereignty as a rule, um, do you really want to open that threshold to countermeasures so quickly? Do you not want to leave a little play in the system so that states aren't now not only violating each other's sovereignty, but also engaging in countermeasures against each other. But let's assume that, that there is some kind of unlawful, internationally wrongful act, therefore justifying a countermeasure. A countermeasure has a lot of constraints, must be non-forceful, must be reversible, must be able to, uh, to bring, it must be meant to bring the state in compliance, it has to be non-forceful, no collective countermeasures. Um, when you think about a countermeasure, it's even more restrictive than a response in self-defense, right? You can take self you can take collective self-defense. You can't exercise collective countermeasures. There's there's lots of restraints on you, you can take exercise self-defense against non-state actors. 
you can't exercise countermeasures against non-state actors. You can only use countermeasures against states. So this regime of countermeasures is, is very restrictive. Um, but once you cross that threshold, I think that countermeasures is, is an excellent uh, tool in the cyber realm. And, and Mike Schmidt wrote a fantastic article on cyber countermeasures. And it's, it's the one I think that most of us consult when we're, when we're uh, thinking about this. But he lays out very clearly what you can and can't do and how it might play out in the cyber realm. And, and I think that the most engaging piece of countermeasures is the thing that you alluded to in your question. That is how states are starting to use cyber countermeasures and what evolution they're applying to the rules on the use of countermeasures. So, for example, Jeremy Wright says, he's, he's the, you know, the, the Minister of Defense for the UK, or the Attorney General for the UK. He says uh, in a statement that with respect to cyber countermeasures, that maybe this idea that you have to notify the the offending party in advance and give them a chance to comply may not apply to cyber countermeasures. Um, that's the same, of course, uh, discourse where he talked about sovereignty and how he views sovereignty as a principle, not as a rule. But so that's a that's a pretty aggressive view of countermeasures, where where traditionally you think that you have to before you can use a countermeasure, you have to notify the offending state and say, look, you're violating. You need to get back into compliance, and I am going to give you time to get back into compliance. Under Jeremy Wright's view, and I think that view is accepted by other countries now as well, um, we don't have to even let you know we're conducting a countermeasure. We're just going to do our cyber countermeasure, and you're going to get the point based on our cyber countermeasure. Mm -hmm. Not, not so, uh, the accepted view. It's not. That's, I mean, that's not. Because yeah, no, I was just about to say that 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 sort of establishes a gong ho Wild West view of what international law is. So, yeah. so that that is that is a slippery slope. Um, Remember, countermeasures have to be non-uses of force, and they yeah. have to be proportionate. I mean, so there are other restraints that, that in an idea keep countermeasure contained and wouldn't lead to escalation. Mm -hmm. But your point is still right. That's the danger of countermeasures: is they might lead to escalation, and it, it is going to create this back and forth. And, and then we also see this uh, position being mirrored, at least in some respects, by the United States and their strategy on, on uh, cyberspace operations. Exactly. Uh, so, so that's so, something interesting that our viewers and audience need should consider as well. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree, absolutely. So from a policy uh, standpoint, Professor Jensen, we've seen the International Court of Justice interpret the threshold of state responsibility as very, very high. So for example, in the oil platforms case, the court noted that the evidence was highly suggestive, but not conclusive. So in the realm of cyberspace where attribution is already very difficult, do you see a sort of a reason to relax the threshold of state responsibility in this area or should it sort of go with the conventional view the way the ICJ has perceived it for in many cases? Um, so if it was me, I would not, um, I would not lessen the role of state responsibility. I would instead increase the responsibility of due diligence and the, the way due diligence works. Again, I think those are, those are almost opposing ways to approach the same problem. Um, I think that um, it should, it, we shouldn't always have to be able to find attribution because the simple truth is that attribution just sometimes takes a lot of time. And, and you don't know at the time you're getting attacked, when you don't know at the time you're getting attacked who it is, uh, and there's no way for you really to know who it is, that just increases the, the risk of your response. But if you know where the attack is coming from, even if you don't know who's pushing the button, then it's easy to say, hey, state, you're responsible because it's coming from within your territory. And if you can't stop it, we are going to stop it because you're not exercising your due diligence 
and we're going to now take countermeasures against you or a use of force even potentially against you because you aren't exercising your due diligence obligations. So, Professor, just really quickly, the, 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 the practical implications of this might also include problems of false pretense that states might rely on. And then that, that's where I, I feel uh, that there may be some discomfort in viewing it with that, with that respect. So your idea is that a state would, would say, uh, would, would use this uh, as a, a false justification mm -hmm. to get the state that they otherwise wanted to yep. act? Yeah, I think that's, that's absolutely true. But, but are you in any different situation with respect to a relaxed attribution approach? Um, you know, I, I don't know that you are, right? Either way, you're going to have states who can use some kind of international justification to do something nefarious if that's what they want to do. And that will only be corrected later in the court of either international opinion or the ICJ or wherever. So the question is, which is more dangerous? Now, I, I will say I, I'm coming across as a strong advocate of due diligence, but there are, there are clearly some risks involved, right? Um, if you're going to say states, you have a due diligence obligation, then states can say, oh, I do have a due diligence obligation. Therefore, I am going to monitor very carefully mm -hmm. all the cyber things that go on in my territory. And you can see where some regimes might use that to be very, uh, to censor and to be uh, very much suppressive of freedom of speech and freedom of thought. And I think this is certainly one of the reasons that the United States has not embraced due diligence uh, so fully is because they're worried about how that might impact human rights. That bothers me as well, obviously, but I, I would hope that we could still have a strong due diligence principle and uh, still enforce human rights obligations. Mm -hmm. Um, my concern with, with this uh, permissive, uh, so, so to speak, uh, approach, uh, both in terms of uh, measures and countermeasures, is that an already asymmetrical uh, position will be more asymmetrical between the existing power dynamics of states. Uh, increasing due diligence on states is, is, is something that can be recommended. But isn't that placing too much responsibility on the states themselves rather than approaching a more preventive and preemptive approach rather than a reactive approach. Uh, how, how, how would you understand that? It's a, it's a really great point. It's easy for, uh, for us to say to the United States, hey, you have an obligation to be responsible for all of the bad things that come from within your territory because the United States presumably has the territory to, or has the capability to stop all of those bad things coming from within the territory, right? right? But if you go to a less developed uh, country that has uh, less cyber capability, their government doesn't have the capability. Exactly some very sophisticated non-state actor who was operating from within their territory simply because they knew the government didn't have the ability to shut them down. Then you're suddenly putting that state in a very precarious situation where, you know, some, some big state who is cyber capable will come in and crush, you know, the cyber capabilities of that state. And, and it's really not that state's fault. They're doing all they can do. Uh, it's, it's a, it is definitely a risk. It's a real risk, but, um, but again, it's not, uh, it's, there are so many circumstances in the world that are similar to that, right? I mean, the U.S.'s adoption of this unwilling and unable doctrine for the use of force and self-defense is, is not dissimilar to that. If, we, if there's a country that um, can't control terrorist organizations, for example, within their territory, the United States will say, well, you're unwilling or unable, therefore we're going to exercise use of force in your territory. It plays out the exact same way. So... Um, I don't, I, in other words, I don't think this is cyber specific. I think it is international law mm -hmm. regime specific. And that we would have to, to it, it, 
rather than trying to solve that problem in the cyber realm, we ought to look at that problem more holistically. Uh, but in your opinion, what would be a viable strategy to reduce the risk of opening the floodgates of, uh, of both unchecked measures and countermeasures from uh, any, any state for that matter? Uh, what sort of legal regime, in your opinion, would be ideal uh, to govern uh, cyberspace in, in, in that regard? Well, I think that the current regime is sufficient, accepting the fact that states are going to manipulate the system uh, somewhat until we come to consensus. So I think that, 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 for example, countermeasures are sufficiently restrained that states are going to be, uh, they're not going to be just flying off the handle with countermeasures. Because remember, there's a strict liability regime for countermeasures, right? If you, if you guess, use a countermeasure and get it wrong, you're strictly liable for the damage that you cause. So this, this is... Uh, there, there, is, there are plenty of, I think, breaks already in the system that will help constrain states. And I certainly don't think we're at a point now where, um, where it's states are so far out of control that we need to upend the entire international law regime. I think we still need to, to disincentivize the use of proxies, for example, and, and states who are taking nefarious actions uh, internationally. But we can dis disincentivize them, I think, within the existing system. Right. Uh, I don't think that, that, that that's a lot of people who don't agree with that. They think there does need to be change. So I, I, I don't know if I'm in a majority or minority, no. but I, I'm sure of that view. President, we really appreciate your candor on the matter. <laughs> at least, at least, there's a significant clarity on it. Uh, uh, if, if you could just uh, close uh, the discussion a little bit, uh, based on the Cyber Command Conference in March and generally the statements of DOD over, over time, how would you understand the current approach of the United States uh, towards uh, cyber operations under international law? And do you agree with it? Yeah, so um, I think that Mr. Nye's um, speech at the Cybercom conference in March was, represents um, a fairly aggressive view of the use of cyber capabilities outside US territory, right? I mean, the, the Cybercom has been saying for a long time, talking about this doctrine of persistent engagement. Right. To, act, to adequately uh, apply that doctrine, you have to be outside your own systems. You have to be gathering intelligence outside your own systems. You have to be watching what's going on outside your own systems. You have to be operating outside your own systems. So the U.S.'s view is pretty clear. Uh, Mr. Nye, I don't think, was, was saying anything new except that it was Mr. Nye who was saying it, right? So he was actually uh, saying this as a, as a statement um, from the Department of Defense and making it very clear where the United States stands on this idea of persistent engagement. I think another thing you can look at is, is the Cyber Solarium Report, right, that just came out in March as well. I mean, the Cyber Solarium Report adopts this idea of deterrence but it's, it's defend forward deterrence. It's not deterrence in the sense that you do this all from within your territory. You, to, to do the deterrence that the Cyber Solarium Report is talking about, you have to be outside your own systems. You have to be engaged in the international cyber space to be able to do this effectively. All right. So it's clear that the U.S. is taking, is adopting, is, is advancing down this road of with respect to our defense, we will be out of our own networks and in other people's networks. I think that's pretty clear. Uh, could you just uh, briefly explain the persistent engagement strategy for our listeners and our viewers so that we have a better idea of what we are talking about here? Yeah, so I mean, the, the details are a bit murky, of course, because how the Department of Defense and particularly Cybercom conduct their operations 
is classified and and they, you don't want to share that of course because then other people would be able to defend better but the general idea is that if it, you if you can't you can't rely on stopping every threat at your front door um, but instead you want to be out in the neighborhood figuring out who's developing threats what threats they're developing what they're building how they're putting it together who they're allied with what their paths might be to get to you how they're gathering intelligence on you all right. of that stuff has to it has to happen outside your front door somewhere in the neighborhood and that's really what persistent engagement is about it's about we are going to defend ourselves, but to adequately do it, we've got to be out in the neighborhood. We've got to be viewing what people are doing, what cyber tools are being developed, who's talking to who and what they're talking about, what practices are being used uh, against others, and how we can learn from them in preparation to protect ourselves. I mean, all of that stuff is part of persistent engagement, and it, it means that, that the U.S., uh, U.S. assets will be resident on non-U.S. infrastructure in order to gather that data and to, to adequately defend. And it's not just intelligence gathering, it's also doing things. I, I mentioned the, the brute force stopping, right? I mean, it, uh, it was reported in, uh, uh, I think it was the Atlantic, that one of the operations that happened was, uh, there was a terrorist organization, ISIS, that was, that was uh, doing some things on a server in another country. And the US action was to just simply break that password get into that server and change the password so that that terrorist organization could no longer access that data. Now, to me, that seems uh, like that is not too offensive to the country in whose territory that server was sitting. They didn't damage anything. All they did was basically cut off access from the terrorist organization to get back to their data. Um, that is part of persistent engagement, I think, at its best. And I, I think that point very cleanly uh, circles back to the, the debate around sovereignty in, in cyberspace. So it's a fantastic point, too, I think. That's right. Our discussion. There's certainly people who don't think that's a great idea because it would be a violation <laughs> of state sovereignty. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right. Uh, do we have any more queries or concerns? Uh, no, I, I, I think, uh, Professor Jensen, just, I, can I just say that, like, I, I think the, the work that you and other practitioners and scholars, along with the government experts are doing in, in regards to the development of cyberspace and the interpretation of international laws is fantastic. So I just wanted to, to say thank you for all, for all the fantastic work. And uh, yeah, looking, looking forward to reading more and uh, seeing, seeing how things develop. Well, thank you. I think it's great that you all are talking about this. I mean, you know, the, the, this will be a discussion for the next you know, few decades. And the mm -hmm. more people who are talking about it, uh, and I don't mind saying that you all look like you're a generation younger than me. So I'm, I'm old and you know, I don't know how long I'll be engaged in this, but it's, it's getting people like you who, who understand the science much better and who are just as deep thinkers as any of us were. Uh, it's getting you engaged to help work out these practices that's going to eventually put us hopefully in a much more safe place. Absolutely. Thank you for what you're doing. Uh, right. Um, would you like to give any uh, concluding remarks on, on the whole issue? Uh, just to say, I, again, I think it's a great issue. There are some great people who are talking about it. Gary Korn, Sean Watts, Mike Schmidt. I mean, all these people are talking about this and, and many, many others. Uh, and I can serve. There, there are tons of people out there who are talking, writing about this. And, and I hope that what we can get to is a position where we can all, uh, at least where international law becomes a little more clear on how to move forward. Right. Uh, thank you so much, Professor Jensen. And I think we had a wonderful discussion. And yeah, uh, we'll see you in the next episode. Uh. <laughs>